0: Hey, this is Jeff Lorber here, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is another master of the bass. I think there's a trend here. Jimmy Haslip is one of the founding members of the Yellow Jackets, a renowned jazz fusion band, and he's done so much more. He's got 22 Grammy nominations and three wins. He's toured and recorded with so many great artists. Just a few of them are Joe Cocker, Shaka Khan, Crosby, Stills & Nash, George Harrison, I gotta ask about that one, Pat Matheny, Bruce Hornsby, Jeff Lorber, and Huey Lewis. How's that for a variety, huh? He's conducted over a thousand clinics and workshops and masterclasses around the world. He is no slouch, that's for sure. And on top of all of this, he's from the Bronx. And that's the best place you could be from. My featured song in this episode, which is playing underneath this introduction and you'll hear it at the end as well, is Joe Z from the Project Grand Slam album Spring Dance that we released in 2012. It's a fusion kind of song and it's got a strange vocal thing going on there and a very driving beat and I just thought it would fit in with some of Jimmy's work that we're going to hear. Because in the second half of this interview, we're going to do something that I absolutely love to do, which is something I call a song fest. I've asked Jimmy to pick out a handful of songs that he thinks are representative of his best work and stuff that he likes and we're going to play them, and we're going to talk about them, and it's going to be something that, you know, we all have fun with. And nobody else does that kind of stuff on a podcast, and I do it with all my musical guests. So, Jimmy Haslip, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Well,
1: thanks for having me here, Robert. Very nice of you to invite me in.
0: You kidding. That's the best thing we could do is have a guy like you on here. (laughs) So, Jimmy, I mentioned you're from the Bronx. You know, I'm a New York guy myself and I play bass too. You play bass. I looked it up. You were born in 1951. I'm a 1951 baby. I mean, we could be brothers from another mother. huh? (laughs) That's
1: possible.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So tell me, I always like to go back in time and talk about, you know, what your motivations were and your dreams were when you were young. So was it always your dream to be a musician?
1: Well, I can't say that. Um, Music was deeply embedded into my childhood, my parents, my older brother, even my aunt who lived with us, my mom's sister. They were all lovers of music. So growing up, I heard quite a variety of, of music, uh, from when I, w- I can remember, including, you know, going to, you know, parties and, and weddings and things like that, family events where there was live music and I was always drawn to it, but, uh, not until I was, I would say in my high school years did I start getting a a lot more interested in music and what was going on with it, you know? uh, I wasn't totally aware of a career in music other than I was a big fan of a lot of music that was happening in the 60s. So uh, going to a lot of concerts and seeing everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Miles Davis live in New York, um, that started perking my interest.
0: Now look, I'm a child of the '60s too. That's that's when I came of age musically. It was the whole British Invasion thing for me, right? Um, And I assume for you as well because that was what was happening back then. What was your first concert? (sighs) Let's see.
1: Gosh, you know, I—that's a tough one. I think it. I actually think it was a group called the Hassles.
0: The Hass Billy Joel.
1: Billy Joel, and that was in, somewhere like in Syosset, Long Island, somewhere. <laughs> uh, and I was just in high school, and I uh, went with a bunch of friends, and I was pretty blown away by what I heard live. You know, because before that, I was hearing, you know, like I was in a band, and I uh, started playing the bass when I was in the seventh grade. So I was in a band, and it was fun. You know, it was just a a fun thing to do, and it was in a high school gym uh, in Syosset. That's all I remember. And I went with a bunch of friends and I was really blown away. And I was like, so this is what, (laughs) this is what's going on. Uh, This is what it's all
0: about. You know, I had a guy on the podcast early on Epi Epstein who ran a place. Oh
1: yeah. ran My father's father's place.
0: place. Yeah, sure. And he (laughs) told the whole story about how so many people started out there, including Billy Joel and the hassles. Now I'm going to test you. Okay. This is live. So you got to get this right. What was okay. their one single? What was it called?
1: Uh well, the, the only song I really remember from that time was a song called You Got Me Humming. You got it. <laughs> you win. <laughs> that was that was a cool song, but they had a lot of cool tunes. And then, you know, I followed Billy Joel a bit after that because the hassles broke up and I saw him again with a duo. And the duo consisted of him on B3 vocals and then the drummer that was in the hassles which i believe was a guy named john small and they had a group called attila and that, that i saw them at a little place in um i think it was a, a, t- a town called amityville there was a club there that i actually ended up playing in, in a band a, a bunch of times it was a club there called the daisy it was like a little hippie club and people would go there and get high and listen to music. So it was a fun, those were fun days.
0: I'll tell you, you know, my father's place still exists in a form, you know, in fact, my band played there just before the pandemic closed everything down. We did a concert at the new, my father's place. Unbelievable. February of 2020. I don't know if it's opened up again, but. What can I tell you? Anyway, okay, so you had this high school band thing going. What was the name of your high school band?
1: I was in several, but the one that that really kind of got things going was a group called the Square Pegs. <laughs> and uh, we were playing like, you know, Mountain. We were playing uh, Siegel Schwal, Blues Band Tunes, Jethro Tull.
0: Wow, you guys uh, were hip.
1: Yeah. Led Zeppelin tunes. Uh, So it was a very cool musical hang. The guys in the band were good, great players. And um, uh, there was twins in the band and and they had a kind of a a rehearsal place that that their parents allowed them to convert the whole basement into a rehearsal room. So it, it turned into a scene. And that that also was a catalyst for, you know, what what came to be.
0: Now, were you playing bass at this time? You were playing bass in these bands.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I like I said, I started when I was in the seventh grade. So I don't know, I was around thirteen years old, something like that. But you know, I I played an instrument for many years. I played trumpet, and I started that when I was in the fourth grade. All so right,
0: hold on here. I told you we got this parallel thing going on because yeah. I was a trumpet player too. <laughs>
1: There's a, there is some kind of crazy thing between trumpet and bass that a lot of bass players that I've talked to, including yourself, we've, we've all played trumpet at some
0: point. (laughs) You know, I've told this story before, but the only reason I became a bass player is because when the Beatles came out, you know, everybody had to get a guitar and me and my buddies, we all got these little acoustic guitars and we would scotch tape. The microphone from a Norelco reel to reel recorder onto the guitar. So we would have electric guitars. And because I played the trumpet, I knew the treble clef. And my <laughs> friends, they didn't know either clef. So I said, okay, I'll volunteer to learn the bass clef. That's how I became a bass player.
1: That's incredible. <laughs> well, that's you, you can't believe how many bass players at one time played trumpet. There's a lot of guys. Even Mark Egan. Really? Yeah, he was His a trumpet name. player.
0: Very cool. Now I heard a rumor, you gotta tell me if this is true, that when you started playing, because you're a lefty, right? But you I am. you played a righty's bass, so it's opposite of the way it would otherwise be set up for a lefty. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Um so when I was 13 and picked up a bass to play in this band, do summer parties, whatever it was, I didn't think about technique or anything. I just wanted to play in the band so went to a Sam Ash and uh no no left-handed instruments so I just went ahead and bought a right-handed bass flipped it upside down learned whatever I think it was like 25 tunes or something you know uh had a blast and just kept doing it until I was in high school and a, and a bunch of guys would come up to me and go you're playing that all wrong. You, you've really <laughs> screwed up, you know. And I said, "Well, you know, say la vie." Again, I, I didn't expect that that it was going to be my my career. So I was just having a ball playing bass, even though it was upside down. Made it easy to sit in.
0: I can imagine. Now, yeah, what I could it, just... <laughs> didn't Hendrix do the same thing? Didn't he play kind of an upside down gu- guitar?
1: Well, he he played a, a righty guitar left-handed, but he restrung it conventionally. Oh, yeah, and I, I could vouch for that, definitely. I mean, I've seen pictures of, of his uh, setup, and it, it, it's definitely conventionally strung. But I actually snuck up on a stage in Randall's Island, and I stood probably about eight feet away from him, behind his Marshall stacks, and I got a really close look at, at his guitar. And I could see that the, you know, the high string was on the bottom and the low string was on top. You know, the, the, the high E and the low E were opposite of what, you know, what I had going on. I had the low E on the four string bass on the bottom. And uh-huh. that's upside down. <laughs> now,
0: was this before or after he set the guitar on fire?
1: So I was way after. I mean, I saw Hendrix four times. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first time was at Madison Square Garden. And I think it was one of the first times he had come to the U.S. But I was really far away from him. He was living in London, I think, at the time. And the record "Are You Experienced" had just been released, so uh, he had a a concert at Madison Square Garden, and I got nosebleed seats, and I I was still blown away. But I did see him a few other times, more a lot closer up. So
0: I got you on this one. Because I saw Hendrix, before he was Hendrix, at a place called the Café Wa in Village. Right. He used to be the guitar player that kind of, you know, was the guitar player for anybody that was up there. And I remember, I didn't know who he was, but this was around 1965. It was before he went to England. You know, Chaz Chandler from The Animals kind of discovered him, brought him That's over right. to England. But before that, he was playing in the Café Wine. Why do I remember? Because he was this unbelievable left-handed guitarist. And I remember seeing him backing somebody up and saying, oh, my God, this guy is good. And the next time I saw him, he's Jimi Hendrix. <laughs>
1: yeah. And, you know, he, uh, he had quite a, a, a career going prior to him being, <laughs> so to speak, Jimi Hendrix. He, was, he played guitar with Cur- King Curtis and, uh, and Little
0: Richard. Didn't know that.
1: Yeah, he was in the band. <laughs> in fact, Little Richard took credit for for uh, get making him flamboyant. You know, like wearing <laughs> bolas and things like that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> See that you learn something every day. Okay, so we, we we're going to go past your teenage years. Although I could talk about okay. this forever because this is fun.
1: But I have an affiliation with Berkeley through the Yellow Jackets. You know okay. that. Yeah, because that the band. Became uh, actually, we became two electives at the school. There was a there was a performance class for an elective, and there was a composition class for an elective. But that came much later. That was like maybe in the in the nineties that they they implemented these classes, and then and then we became so so to speak matinee idols at Berkeley, (laughs) and we we were brought in quite a bit once those classes were implemented. Uh, to do residencies and and do workshops and clinics and and even a few concerts, so that it was great. And I got to know a lot of the professors there, and of course some of the professors there are my friends now. Uh, you know, like John Patitucci, you know Terry Lynn Carrington. They're all professors at Berkeley, and I I know all those people, and they're wonderful people and incredible teachers. So. Yeah.
0: Well, I lived in Boston for a while, and the guys that I played with were mainly going to New England Conservatory, which was the other school that was teaching jazz at the time. One of the guys that I played with up there was Anton Figg, who went on to play with Letterman for so many years. But Berkeley is the school. There's so many greats that have uh, gone there.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm basically, uh, and I agree, and I I do envy that in, in, in many ways because I, I, I'm basically a self-taught musician. I mean, I took lessons from people. I got some incredible instruction from uh, a variety of musicians that really helped me along with understanding harmony and theory and, um, you know, motivating me to, to practice and, and uh, work hard at, at the craft. But I never went to music school, so you know I always, even <laughs> and ironically, I I get to go to music schools all over the world and teach, and I always think in the back of my head, you know, these kids out here that are studying, they're they're lucky, you know, they get to to, to uh, you know sit in classrooms and really learn the craft. You know, I had to, I had to kind of do that on my own, which was fine. I was really motivated to do that, so. But I, on on a certain level, I wished I had gone at least to a couple of years of music school to really get some other things happening. You know, there's a lot to learn. I, I always notice uh, guys that come out of Berkeley; they have a certain technique and understanding of harmony that I I sort of do, but it's kind of my own my own uh, fashion of 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 doing things. Wow. I had to make. I had to make some things up uh then then of course with the technique of playing upside down uh that created some challenges as well so as celevi it's it is what it is I, i'm now turning 70 in in december and i've been playing for a, around 55 years so
0: i think it turned out pretty well
1: it's all it's all okay <laughs>
0: All right, so go back a little bit. Tell us how the, the Yellow Jackets came to be, and I know you were with them from, what, around 77 to 2012, something like that?
1: Yeah, actually, 77 uh, is when it sort of just started with my, my meeting uh, up with Robin Ford. I happened to meet Robin. I was playing with Flora Purim and Ayrto in Moriera in a band, and we played here locally in Los Angeles a couple of nights. And he happened to be in the audience. So he approached me and talked to me about getting together to play. And I knew who he was because I I'd heard him play with um the LA Express, Tom Scott and the LA Express, and, and also with Joni Mitchell. So and I knew I knew about some of his other musical experience with, with like Jimmy Witherspoon and People like that. Uh, Eric Burden. He played Eric Burden for a minute. Uh, so I got together with Robin, and that was that's where it all started. He was really good friends with Russell Ferrante, who became the keyboard player in the band. And I had been playing in Flora Ayerto's band with a drummer named Ricky Lawson. So right there, there's the, the quartet. We got together. We rehearsed. We did some gigs here locally in L.A., and eventually we went in the studio and we recorded a record for Robin on Electra Asylum, which was called The Inside Story. And that was produced by Steve Cropper. Really? Who was the guitar player and, and Booker T and the MGs. Right. And wrote In the Midnight Hour with Wilson <laughs> Pickett, uh, which I, I think I must have played a, a few hundred times when I was in
0: high school. I think I'm with you on that. I must have played it a few hundred times. As well. <laughs> That's an interesting combo, though, to have Steve Cropper doing an album like that. Yeah,
1: well, and he was he was great. He was so supportive. I don't think it was his musical taste, but I think he understood that we were just going for some different stuff. And, you know, Robin and Russ were the composers uh, predominantly. I, I, uh, when we did the first Yellow Jackets record, we all had a hand in composition, but that first project was really robin's solo first solo record and we just had a ball doing it steve was great i actually got to meet duck dunn during the session
0: donald duck dunn
1: yeah which was for me you know i i love the history of music and meeting people like duck who i heard a million times on records it was just a joy you know for me and also you know it created more motivation in what I was doing. I, I just, you know, meeting these people firsthand and understanding what, what their career was all about. It just gave me a lot of juice to, you know, keep working hard and try to become a better musician.
0: That's fabulous. I want to talk about some of the people that I read before where I've talked about before that you have played with. I mean, the one that, intrigues the heck out of me is george harrison tell me what you did with george
1: well i put george in there and it's maybe unfair on some level but i don't think so because i was in awe i i love the beatles so i got to meet ringo Starr a couple of times and i got to play in a session with george harrison so that's and it was for a um a gary wright record uh i ended up hooking up with gary wright uh, I guess that was in the 90s or the late 80s. Uh, somebody recommended me to do some recording with Gary. And I went in there and recorded. He he mostly would use synth bass. Uh, Gary Wright was a synth bass guy. So I think he wanted to try electric. And somebody said, you should call this guy. So there I was. And um, Gary Wright was really good friends with George Harrison. Because, you know, Gary Wright was in a, a an English band. It was the first time I heard him. was a band called Spooky Tooth. Have you ever heard of them? Spooky Tooth, yes. Gary Wright was in Spooky Tooth. But, and, and I remember buying that record because I had a short little career. Uh, my senior year of high school, I got a part-time job at a Sam Goodies. And it was great because he got a discount on records. And back then, believe it or not, records, vinyl records were three bucks. Yeah. And... Because I was an employee, I got them for a dollar fifty. So I would go in the bins and I would just let anything that looked interesting, I'd just buy it. You know? <laughs> I'd get my paycheck on, on Friday. I'd have like 90 bucks or something, and I'd just I'd end up buying like, you know, like 20 records and bring them all <laughs> home. And so I walk in the studio, there's Terry Bozio, there's Glenn Ferris and George Harrison. So we recorded a tune together, and that was Probably one of the biggest thrills in my life to play with a Beatle.
0: You know, I can imagine. You know, I had a conversation with uh, Nathan East recently, and I want to have the same one with you, because you know McCartney was a uh, an inspiration for me as a bassist. I'm sure he was for you as well. Absolutely, th- he's underrated in a sense. You know, th- because he's got so much talent in so many areas that people don't talk as much about his bass playing. But the one song that I think typifies just how great a bassist he is, is the song Something that George Harrison wrote. Why do I say that? Because, you know, as bassists, we're kind of trained that when you have a ballad, a love song, a quiet song like that, you you go for simplicity. And yet in that song, McCartney played almost like a lead bass. He was so active and yet it was perfect. What did you think?
1: Well, I think almost everything, I would say everything he did with the Beatles was perfect. <laughs> yes, uh, I've, I still to this day listen to a lot of Beatle music um, and I'm always in awe at the bass playing, not to mention the composition, the vocals, the guitar playing, the drumming, the whole nine yards. But for sure, as a bass player, I focus on what Paul is doing on on a particular song and it's always just exquisite i just go you know this and it's so natural you know and 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 i came to find out in in some readings about the beatles that paul didn't he he wanted to play guitar in the band he didn't want to play bass (laughs) but but they said no you're the bass player so (laughs) that was it you know he um he took it up but then of course as everyone knows, he was a multi instrumentalist. Right. He wasn't just a bass player, but what he did on bass was absolutely exquisite. And you know, f- he fit in there like a like hand in glove. It was just uh, extraordinary. The whole the the band is extraordinary. So I'm glad
0: you used that word exquisite because in all of my discussions with all the great bass players that I've been talking with recently from Nathan to Lee Sklar and Jim Fielder, I interviewed from Blood, Sweat and Tears. To me, the two most important words that I use to describe great bass players, tasteful and exquisite.
1: And that's and you you could put Paul McCartney's face under that, under those (laughs) two words.
0: And you could put so many others in that category. Well, yeah, I gotta put you in that category as well.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. You know, for me it's a work in progress and uh you know, I'm just continuing on here with quite a bit of music and I, I feel blessed every day to wake up and have things going on currently that are going on. But I'll I'll never lose sight of people like Paul McCartney or, you know, I mean, the list is very long. You know, Larry Graham, uh, you know, uh, Ron Carter, you name it. I, I could probably... Uh, put a list of a thousand bass players in front of you, and, and they're all of them are inspiring to me. So,
0: couldn't agree more with you. There's so yeah. many guys that have come before, and that you know, they were just magnificent. Chris
1: Squire, you know, is another
0: one. You know, I when he came out with that bass part in Roundabout, I remember <laughs> hearing that, and my tongue was hanging out saying, How does anybody do that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, that was one of my, uh, uh, Fragile was one of my favorite Yes records. I think I w- wore the, the grooves out of that <laughs> thing in a couple of days. I just kept playing it over and over. But uh, what an incredible musician. And that band was, I loved, you know, I loved progressive rock. So th- that was one of the top bands in, on my list, you know, along with, with bands like Jethro Tull and Gentle Giant you know King Crimson I loved all that music and uh, and I got to see growing up I have to say growing up in New York was a gift because everybody wanted to play in New York right. so you had an opportunity to see all these th- all these musicians and artists live in person
0: and the other thing was you know because I'm sure you went to the Fillmore East right many <laughs> many times what was so great I back actually then got was-
1: thrown out of the film <laughs>
0: You I couldn't believe about it. This a little bit, you know. Back then, guys like Bill Graham put together bills that were so interesting. You know, you have Miles Davis opening for the Who, for example. All right. All right. I mean, then you say to yourself, why doesn't that happen now? You know, everything has to be homogenous. Everything has to fit together. I thought it was great when they combined different styles like that. It helped the artists because they were exposed to audiences that they might not be exposed to otherwise. And it, it was just a magnificent way to do it.
1: It was. I mean, I, I got blown away countless times at the Fillmore. I, I went there to see a group called Blood, Sweat and & Tears. And uh, I think also on the bill was, was uh, a, a group called Bloodwind Pig. Right. <laughs> which was an offshoot of Jethro Tull. It was Mick Abrams' band, who right. was the original guitar player. Guitar player. And then there was another band I never heard of and they were the, they were the opener. So they come out, they get introduced. I said, you know, their first, uh, uh this is their first U.S. tour. Please welcome Led Zeppelin. <laughs> I'm going like, okay, great. And they start playing. And I just, I couldn't believe it, uh, what they played, you know, seeing Bonham and Jimmy Page, Robert Plant and John Paul Jones. I just, after that, I was blown away. I was ready to go home after that. But then <laughs> Bloodwind Pig was great, and Blood, Foot, and Tears was incredible. So, yeah, you know, that's a full night of music. And you just walk away with, you know, so much uh, positivity. That's all I could say.
0: I had one experience I can think of like that. Uh, Leon Russell was the headliner at the Fillmore, and this new guy from England opened up from his name was Elton John. And that's <laughs> when Elton John had the trio. You know, with D. E- e Murray on bass, and I forget his drummer's name, but... Nigel was, Olson? Nigel Olson. That trio was was special. I mean, it really was special.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. I, I'm a big fan of D. Murray's. Right. You know, I, I, you know may he rest in peace. Uh, his bass parts were fantastic, especially the first... What was the first record um, that I... Oh, I can't. No tumbleweed connection. Ha- yes, that was it. Cause I, I I I love this one song called Take Me to the Pilot. So sure. you know, I was in this band and we learned it and you know didn't play it like them, but but it was yeah, uh, you know, that's all such great music. And like you said, Dick, all, all these bands and artists were all coming from different places, but it didn't matter. It was all music and it was all inspired and it just brought so much joy. Uh now everything if you know it's and I understand. Hey, look, I love this new movie that came out. Uh thanks to um uh the drummer from from the tonight show. Um sorry, I'm spacing you don't mean out. sound
0: of metal, do you?
1: Uh no, uh it's the, the the uh the Black Woodstock. Uh
0: oh I don't know about this Oh
1: you don't know about this movie? No. Oh, You've gotta check it out. This movie was shot, it was like it was considered like the, the Black Woodstock and it had, you know, everyone Aretha, BB uh, King, slime the Family Stone. It's all these incredible black artists and and in a giant facility. And it's it's like Woodstock, but it's all <laughs> black music. And it's just so inspiring to, to watch. And I saw a lot of these, a lot of those artists all around in different places. Aretha I saw live. I saw B.B. King live many times. Flying the Family Stone, I saw them like four or five times. Yeah, they were incredible, weren't they? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And, you know, you know, what can you say about Larry Graham? You yeah. know, the, that was un- unbelievable.
0: All right, you and I got so many memories in common here. It's great. It's
1: unbelievable.
0: Okay, so let's go on to, this, to the Songfest thing that we were talking about because I asked you to pick out a handful of songs that you like that was hard. Kind of representative of your career. Yeah, you know, it's interesting when I ask artists to do this, they come up with things that I would not maybe come up with, but that's okay. i I'm, I want to focus in on what you think is your best work. So the first song that we're hearing right now underneath me is called Greenhouse by the Yellow Jackets. It's a it's an interesting song. I have to say, you know, it's kind of got that classical type thing going for the first couple of minutes. And yes. then right right around the five minute mark, it gets into a whole fusion-y kind of thing. I think Mincer is, is um, playing on that one with you guys. Yes, he is. us about that. Tell us how it came about. Why did you pick that one?
1: Well, um, that song just meant a lot to me. You know, it, it, this was really a hard thing to do because you know there was a long period of time where I was doing mostly rock sessions, and I love a lot of that. But I just picked a few things that I that I personally like. That, that's I, not necessarily maybe my best work, but just stuff that I really like. Greenhouse. I wrote that with Russ Ferrante. It's pretty deep emotionally. Uh, what that song meant on many levels, uh, I can't even go into everything because there's a lot of personal stuff in there for for both me and Russ. But but uh, the whole greenhouse title came about. I watched uh, when I watched a a documentary on the greenhouse effect. Back in 1988, <laughs> here we are in 2021, and people are still not listening about, yep. about global warming. But in 1988, they were already talking about global warming and the greenhouse effect. So uh, that was something after seeing that um, documentary, I was, you know, really, I, I won't say I was freaked out, but I was really concerned about what was going on here in this planet. And so there is, I think when people hear the song that they, they hear the intensity and the seriousness that was uh, intended with the uh, the way the music was put together. So that that's it, I just, uh, there's a lot of things I can't discuss with you because they're personal for not just me, but for us. And, and when we were writing this, it, there was, We already had a very serious bond as musicians and uh, co-founders of the Yellow Jackets. But I think this song for me really brought a whole nother level of of um, intimacy with with Russ and I about our our life, you know, and the life of our children and and all this. Uh, So
0: but and you use the word intensity. And yeah, I would say that that adjective applies to this song so yeah you were trying to capture you did
1: and that was uh uh, by the way just uh uh, some trivia that was bob mincer's first record with us um mark russo had left the band the alto player uh who left the yellow jackets and then we we brought in bob mincer to play with us just to play we we didn't ask him to join the band we just said how would you like to record a record with us and we played him some of this music and he really liked it so he said yeah i'll, I'll come out there and play on this so he was wonderful uh, it was our first time meeting uh, a very important writer and uh composer by the name of vince mendoza he did the actual string arrangement for us and we recorded a 28-piece chamber orchestra mm which is something that Russell and I were very interested in, you know, melding some of the classical inspiration that we had with our music. Um, and uh, that brought that to fruition. Uh, we also had flown in uh, an incredible in- recording engineer that we had worked with on a record prior to that with Mark Russo in Oslo, Norway. It was a gentleman named Jan-Erik Kunshag who had, at that time, recorded like 400 ECM records with Manfred, Manfred Eicher. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, Jan-Erik is, holds a big place in my heart. He was just a wonderful person. We got to spend a whole month in Oslo doing a record called The Spin. And then he, we brought him out to L.A. to do Greenhouse, which was, that's the title track of that record, Greenhouse.
0: Okay, let's move on to the second one. I want to make sure I get this right. Jing Chi. Um, that's correct. Chi Town? Chi Town? I'm not yeah. sure which one. Yeah, well, it. you can,
1: that's, it's a play on words. You can say Chi Town for Jing Chi, or you can say Chi Town for Chicago.
0: That's what, I was, that's what I was in between, okay?
1: Yeah, that's it. <laughs>
0: Tell us a little bit about this one. You got, you got some really interesting images on the video that goes along with this. You got the sunset thing going,
1: <laughs> out of space
0: images going. Tell me what this is about.
1: Well, it was just, uh, you know, like a psychedelic kind of piece of music. I wrote this with a very fine pianist, keyboardist from Caracas, Venezuela. His name is Otmaro Ruiz, who will later did a recording with and I included a piece for, uh, for you, on, uh, on this five song, uh, list, but Odd Morrow didn't play on, on this track. Cause I, I had already programmed all the keyboards. He just helped me with the melody, which I, sh- I, I wrote out and showed showed it to Robin Ford and Robin played the melody on guitar. And, uh, you know, it was just this psychedelic piece. What Jing Chi was, was a, a, a band that, that we, you know, I love Robin. Robin and I have a long history. And we, I had an opportunity to put a project together for a small label in Novato, California, called Shrapnel Records. And so I came up with this idea of doing a trio with Vinnie Collyuda on drums, Robin Ford on guitar. And myself and Robin came up with the name of the band Jing Chi, uh, which means vital energy in in Chinese. So we did uh, four records that this band did four records. So I produced all four of them. Uh, the last one actually I, I co-produced with Robin, and um, this is from a record called Three D, and it was just uh, we were just experimenting and. We, what we had in our heads was kind of like the, the cream uh, after going uh, after being abducted by aliens.
0: or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, Okay. I want to focus on that image cream after okay. being abducted by aliens. Okay. should have put that in parentheses. Okay. What I love that image.
1: We love the cream. I got, and I, Robin and I both saw the creams many times. Growing up, you know, Eric, what can you say about Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker, and, and, and
0: Jack Bruce?
1: I mean, <laughs>
0: too much. All right, let's go to the third number here. I'm going to take a shot at pronouncing this one as well Owoso.
1: That's very close. It's Owasso. Okay. I came right. close. It's,
0: the art Trio. It's, it's <laughs>
1: another trio project. Scott of.
0: Kinsey, Gergo Borlai, yourself. Yes. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Okay, so that's, I was starting a fourth solo project. I had three that were released prior to that, over 20 years or whatever. Uh, So I started writing some music for this fourth solo project, and I ended up hooking up with Scott Kinsey, who uh, people out there may know. He was a keyboard player in a fine, incredible uh, quartet called Tribal Tech. With Scott Henderson, uh, Gary Willis on bass, Scott Henderson on guitar, and uh, Kurt Covington on drums. And Scott Kinsey was the keyboard player. He's uh, he's an incredible musician and composer. And I decided to collaborate with him. And then after a while, it just was evident to me that this was not a solo record. This is going to be a collaborative project. And he had turned me on to this... Uh, Pretty incredible drummer from Budapest, Hungary, named Gergo Borlai, and we brought him in. He couldn't finish this record. We wanted to make it a band, but he couldn't finish. He had some commitments in Europe. So I, I did end up bringing in a couple other drummers to fill in for him, Vinny Kalyuta being one and Gary Novak being another. If you're not familiar with Gary Novak, he's just Google his name and uh, you'll see what he's done. He, is quite an incredible drummer.
0: Well, so so is Vinnie Kaliuta who I think is one of the greatest drummers of all time.
1: And and you'll also hear that, that Gergo Borlai is also an incredible drummer. So I've been blessed place with some of these incredible musicians. Um fabulous. And this is this was just a fun project to work on. Scott Kinsey actually wrote this song, had no title. Uh, and as I learned it and played it I felt like it was influenced by some kind of African music cuz over the years I've become an ethnomusicologist and I hear roots of things in music all the time and I you know I listen to what what it is and I you know and I take inspiration from that so I I looked at Scott and I said is were you thinking of something from Africa on this or trying to come up with a title he said no <laughs> Nothing in particular. <laughs> so I found out that he was originally born and raised in a little town in Michigan called Owasso,
0: <laughs> which sounds African. We <laughs> were
1: exactly so. I said, "Okay, let's call the song Owasso."
0: <laughs> you lucked and he out. Said,
1: <laughs> I did. I did luck out with that. I, I've always had a thing with titles as well. So. I enjoy doing that. That's fun for me. So isn't that nice? All
0: right, let's go to the fourth song. This one is called The Waiting Game. This one I can pronounce easily enough. And the band is Elemental. You were playing with Jimmy Branley and uh, Atmaro Ruiz. That's correct. Us a little bit about that.
1: That was a trio project that I just fell into because I worked with both of those musicians. Again, Admaro is from Caracas Venezuela, but he's been around playing with a ton of people. So he and I both played with Gino Vanelli and we've done a lot of gigs around town playing his music and stand even standards <laughs> playing in different clubs. Uh, he's phenomenal. Uh, I've written some music with him. He actually did a live Jing Chi record. I brought him in to do that. And that was recorded at Yoshi's. Uh, So I brought an engineer up there and I produced a live record on Jing Chi at Yoshi's with Admaro on keyboards. It was his music, all his music. He wrote all the tunes. They asked me to submit something. So I brought in a, a Jackets tune that Admaro really liked and had an arrangement of. So I said, well, let's do that. So there's one Jackets tune on on the record called Boomtown that I co-wrote with Russ Ferrante. And uh, the drummer, Jimmy Branley is from Cuba. He's from Havana, Cuba. And he's been living here forever. Admaro, I should say, is now recording with Simon Phillips in a band called Protocol great band and jimmy branley has been touring with a variety of people he's also a fantastic recording engineer and editor and and um mastering engineer so it was a, it was a just a, a really uh quick little project we we learned all the music recorded it all at, in jimmy's
0: garage <laughs> you were a garage band is that what you're telling We tell
1: were me? a garage <laughs> <laughs> and jimmy did some a little editing, some overdubs we did uh for a day or two and jimmy um mixed and mastered the whole thing. it came out on uh, you know i've been r'ing a, a a small boutique label out of las vegas called blue canoe records. i got about 25 things i've R'd over there over the last 3 years. this record which is called elemental was nominated um, Last year uh, for a Latin Grammy. Fantastic.
0: So we didn't win, but we got a nomination. All right, that's hey, close enough. All right, last one that we've got on our hit parade here: El Moro, Red Heat. us about that.
1: Okay, so Red Heat was a record I did uh, in tribute to my dad, um, who was very ill at the time. And he always he would always ask me to talk to the Yellow Jackets about doing a Latin record. You know, I'm 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 a little over half Puerto Rican. So my father was born in San Juan and um you know thanks to him I got a serious helping of salsa music and latin music as a kid you know he even taught me how to play a simple clave groove and uh, we had bongos in the house we had congas we had shakers and guidos and all sorts of maracas we had all that stuff in the house so i learned a lot about latin music as a little kid my dad wanted the yellow jackets to do a latin record but i I told him that would be probably impossible, but we could record some music that had Latin influence. But at, at this juncture, he was ill. I had an opportunity to do a record for a small label called Unitone uh, Records, uh, which was a label owned by Patrick Leonard, who wrote uh, some hits with Madonna. <laughs> and he had his own label that he loved jazz. And so, I decided to do this record in tribute to my dad. And it was all basically influenced by the Latin music that was in my blood. That's and
0: fantastic.
1: I did it as a collaborative project with uh, Joe Vanelli, who is Gino Vanelli's older brother.
0: Interesting. You know, I'm not Latin myself, but my father loved Latin music. My father was a trumpet player, by the way. That's how I oh, became a trumpet player.
1: That's incredible.
0: And I, growing up in New York City, he had on the radio all the Spanish stations all the time. So I constantly heard those Spanish beats, which I loved. And then in my band, Project Grand Slam, most of my band is Latin. So I started writing Latin material for them because... It was just so natural for them. So I can understand how you would want to do something like that, particularly for your father.
1: Yes. Thank you. And, and El, El Moro was one of his favorite places to hang out in when he was a boy living in Puerto Rico. It's, it's in the fortress there in San Juan. And El Moro is known as the Haunted Century Box. <laughs> And it's a a tourist attraction, but my dad seemed to really like hanging out over there. And so this song, I thought, uh, had some some sort of vibe about that. So I called it El Moro. Terrific.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, we have been speaking here to Jimmy Haslip, who is just a remarkable musician, Producer, bass player. He's done everything. He writes, he speaks, he gives master classes. <laughs> this man cannot be denied. It's been a pleasure, really, to have you on the show. I thank you so much for doing this. Here are the key takeaways from my interview with Jimmy Haslip You don't absolutely need formal training in your field, you can learn on your own. You need desire and hard work to be successful at your dream. Now we're going to listen again to the song that we started out at the beginning of this episode. It's a song that I wrote called Joe Z, which uh, no big surprise. I wrote for a guy named Joe Zawinall who was a hero of mine, and it's on our album Spring Dance. So I hope you enjoy it. And thanks so much. And we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at Robert at Podcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at Project GrandSlam.com and at the